Welcome to Going Further and Higher, Shakespeare Martineau's podcast in which we discuss topical or indeed long-running themes in higher and further education. My name is Smita Jamdar and I'm partner and head of education at Shakespeare Martineau. In today's episode, we're going to revisit the very familiar topic of freedom of speech on campus. And I wanted to focus on the issue of enforcing the rights uh, conferred on uh, disgruntled uh, students and staff, uh, both by the current legislative framework and the Higher Education Freedom of Speech Bill. And to have that discussion, I'm joined by Andrew Adams, who's a partner in our litigation team, who's been advising institutions uh, in a number of such cases. So, Andrew, it's fair to say, I think, that we've seen an increase in the number of complaints and claims based on free speech in its broadest sense, um, ranging from the classic controversial speaker event all the way through to complaints about broader discussions and interactions on campus. So I thought maybe you could start by just giving us a sort of brief overview on the types of claims that you've seen over recent years. Well, thanks, Mita, and thanks for inviting me. We see a range of different types of claims. They can be from students in relation to the content of their courses, lectures, course materials. They may say that they breach the Equality Act in all sorts of different ways, which can result in the students excluding themselves from lectures or claiming to have lost the opportunity to gain a qualification or practice their chosen career. Um, they can be from students who allege that their particular course is uh, discriminatory, um, same relation to the way the survivor has been conducted. Um, this can be based on alleged discrimination on grounds of race or political beliefs. We've also seen claims from visiting lecturers as well, where proposed lectures have been cancelled, usually on grounds of security concerns, but where the lecture argues that the true reason is perhaps opposition to their political views either by a student union or by a group of students. I mean, usually these are claims for compensation, but they can include claims for an injunction to force a university to take a particular step, or they can also include a threat of judicial review in respect of a decision made by a university. So a very broad range, really. Yeah, and I think that's what um, uh, sometimes gets overlooked because the focus is so often on that, you know, controversial event, the speaker not being allowed to speak or being disinvited or, or however it might take shape. But I think I, exactly deplatformed, yeah. cancelled. Um, but I think what's fascinating is is that whole is the breadth of of um free speech issues, particularly around the academic activities of the institution. And I think institutions sometimes forget that the free speech duties extend to that side of things as well as to to controversial events so so you mentioned that um in terms of how those claims are currently advanced you're looking at judicial review you're looking at potential discrimination claims you might be looking at injunctions um and probably with the exception of injunctions which can definitely be expensive but aren't necessarily time consuming because they're urgent any form of litigation uh, is famously uh, time-consuming and expensive. And I guess one of the things that um, comes into play is how these claims are typically funded uh, by disgruntled claimants. I mean, if you're a lecturer or a student who's who's aggrieved, you're not necessarily going to have the deepest of pockets. So how are they typically funded? It, it's a really good point, Smita. I mean, uh, they can be funded by a no-win, no-fee arrangement with a firm of lawyers. And 
there are lawyers whose business model is to take a highly speculative um, case from an individual. Um, they charge high hourly rates. They carry out a lot of work at an early stage, very much front-end loading a claim. They maximise the pressure on an institution, bringing proceedings, and then they try to use that pressure to force the university to, to settle the case. And, you know, until that point, it costs the student nothing. And the, the law firm will, of course, look to take their fees from the institution that is settling that claim. Uh, so we do see quite a lot of no win, no fee um, claims in, in terms of funding. The other thing we see is crowdfunding. Yeah. I mean, this is a fairly novel area, you know, but um, people set up a GoFundMe page and they put uh, YouTube videos out there and they try to get people who have similar views to their own to support their their particular claim. And I think in the current environment, in there's, there's lots of talk about, you know, wokery or deplatforming or political correctness gone mad if you... <laughs> If you're reasonably, you know, an articulate claimant with a particular cause, a particular axe to grind, you know, you will find people out there who will support that claim. So the two of them, really, um, both no win, no fee and also um, crowdfunding as well. Yeah. And I find it fascinating that, you know, this could rapidly become about a popularity contest. Yeah. Uh, around viewpoints or equally given that you know the essence of the protection both under the convention european convention on human rights and under academic freedom definitions is to protect unpopular and controversial opinions as much as as those that can garner widespread support it sort of feels a little bit like uh, that, you know those are the ones that may not be able to be advanced because they can't secure enough crowdfunding um and and that you know that that again feels to me like not really what freedom of speech should be about. You know how much how much support can you garner? It, it does, and I think it's it, it's something of a it's it's a very one sided situation, isn't it? Because um, a, a student that's prepared to put their name out there and advance their particular cause may get some funding, but for a whole host of reasons, the university doesn't or can't do the same thing so mm. you know they don't have the opportunity to put their side of the story and there is very often a, you know a, a very good story to tell yeah that doesn't, that doesn't get told other than in the private context of court and of course nobody wants to go to court for all sorts of reasons including cost or potential publicity or loss of management you know management time and so on yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, w- I want to come back to the sort of alternatives to possibly going to court in those cases in a minute. But assuming that, you know, a case was to be fought all the way through to court. Yeah. Um, well, I say all the way through to court, all the way through to a final hearing. Sure. It just, it, you know, as a sort of ballpark for people to understand, how long does it typically take for from a case being started to actually being heard and adjudicated um, in court? Gosh, it, it, it can be a very long time. It's a, it's almost slightly embarrassing to say this, really. Um, but cases, you know, they from the there's a whole number of stages that have to be gone through before proceedings are even commence, and that itself can take six months. Yeah, it can easily take two years from a claim being commenced to a case getting to trial. And the problem with these types of cases is they are always complex. So they are never going to be capable of going down some accelerated route. They're always going to have to go all the way if they're contested. So two or three years easily. Absolutely. And 
I, I think that's something which I feel has kind of been lost in some of the discussion around the statutory tort, the new statutory tort that was proposed in the um, Higher Education Freedom of Speech Bill. Obviously, the Lords took a very dim view of it and removed it. Yeah. All, the, all the suggestions are that governments are going to try and put it back again. There might be some tweaking around whether it's uh, a backstop, i.e. you yeah. have to have gone through all of the internal processes first. But if it comes back... Um, Based on what you've said, I think we can conclude that it may not be very quick or easy to get a case heard. Um, th they won't necessarily carry a high monetary value, these cases, because, you know, the losses aren't very easy to quantify. Um, but from what you're saying, Andy, you think it's probably unlikely to be the case that it could be dealt with as a small claim with all the informality and comparative speed that that might bring. What, what what are your thoughts about that? Do you think they are suitable for small claims? Almost never, I'm afraid. I mean, the small, <laughs> the, the small claims maximum threshold is usually £10,000. Um, for a start, most of these claims are usually valued above that threshold. But even if they're not, you know, they are complex. They involve yeah. difficult issues, breach of, you know, a breach of duty, interpretation of legislation, examining events through the lens of a student's time at a university and so on. And you know, I don't think either party is going to want to be able to do that in the very truncated procedure of a small claim. So yeah. I think you are going to be locked into the, uh, you know, the, the the other structures that you have for dealing with civil litigation, you know, usually a multi-track case. And that's you're then locked into the sorts of um, timescales that I mentioned a few moments ago. Yeah. And um when you think about, you know, the, the the pressure that's been put on government to bring this back in, it's come from people saying, well, if you make us go through the internal processes of the university and then the OFS, that could be months and months. But without really, I suppose, recognising that actually from a, you know, a sort of statutory tort point of view, that's also going to have a very long time scale. I think the other thing is um, I... You get the feeling that people are going to want rulings in these yeah. cases, aren't they? They're not necessarily going to be ones where you would want to settle it um, by way of, you know, alternative dispute resolution or mediation. What's what's your thinking about that? I think that's right. I mean, I think it's naive really to assume that, you know, all or most students have as their ultimate goal the resolution of a claim through a simple internal complaints process or through a process that would be run by the, the OFS. I mean, people pursue claims for all sorts of reasons. It may be they want the compensation. They may just want their day in court. They may be wanting to make a particular political point. Um, you know, so I think that in, in very many of these cases, they're not going to want to resolve a case through either of the, those processes, an internal process or the OFS. So um, I think to say that um, by having those processes will mean that not many cases go through to court. I just can't see it panning out that way. Yeah. I think the reality is many of the claimants we see will be sending lawyers letters pretty quickly and that will be their end game and if they have to go through other processes they will but it will be a formality to get to where they want to get to to bring yeah. the court. Um, just one final question then which relates to the new OFS complaint route that you've just alluded to um, and I'm sort of struck by the fact that uh, freedom of speech and academic freedom both the definitions are caveated by the need for it to be within the law. Yeah. Um, and in lots of cases that we've dealt with, the central question is whether or not the speech in question or the you know, conduct in question was within the law. You know, sure. there's an argument over that. Um, so do you think that a complaint scheme administered by an organisation that has no competence to make findings of law, it's, it's, it's not a tribunal in that sense, can really 
answer the question? Or do you think that actually the OFS could re- quite quickly find itself in some difficulties and some challenges to its own decisions because people are unhappy with its rulings? Very much so. I mean, obviously, we don't know the final form of an OFS scheme that would be brought in. But I do think that it's highly unlikely that the OFS would be able to, A, have the competence to consider those legal issues. And it, it's almost, a, it's perhaps slightly analogous to a complaint which goes to the OIA, doesn't it? They'll they'll deal with uh, the way a particular complaint has been handled, for example, and they'll consider process issues, but they'll simply con- not consider themselves to be uh, competent to to deal with uh, matters of law. Now, I know the OFS will be bound to consider matters of law in relation to alleged breaches of freedom of speech obligations. But in reality, when as and when they do make those decisions, I think it's highly likely that those decisions, if they certainly if they go against a complainant, will be the subject of judicial review claims, in particular brought through the courts. So. I just see it as creating more litigation, really, rather than resolving the majority of cases at the OFS stage, which apparently would be the the aim of having that scheme. So um, a a joyous future to look forward to when this new scheme comes into place. Thanks very much for sharing your thoughts, Andrew, and thanks to all of you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time and don't forget to hit the subscribe button. And if you like what you've heard, please do leave a review. And in the meantime, from Andrew and me, it's goodbye. Goodbye.